You're listening to Sportsnet Today with Logan Gordon on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. All right, let's get things going on a Tuesday. It is January 30th. We are live in the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studios for another edition of Sportsnet Today. It's Logan Gordon along with you for our friends at Doug Lacey's Basement Systems. Crack Foundation, Bowling Foundation walls. They have a simple permanent solution to stabilize your foundation. Contact Basement Systems. They're all things basement even. DL Basement Systems. Dot com. Busy show for you today. We'll chat with our CFL pals at Three Down Nation. John Hodge is going to join us for a little bit of a CFL free agency preview. The Jays making a splash in free agency today. We'll hear from Ben Nicholson Smith and more as the program goes on. You can get a hold of us at 960-960 if you're listening on the fan feedback line. Outstanding producers on this Tuesday are Cam and Shannon. And we're diving right into it on a Tuesday. Time to chat with our NHL insiders. Time to chat with Frank Saravalli from Daily Face. Uh, brought to you by South Trail Chrysler, where they always make the buying process simple. Look for the big Canadian flag at 130th Ave or visit SouthTrailChrysler.com. Frank, we finally gave Pat some time off, so you're stuck with me this week, pal. How are you? Good. You released him from the chains in your studio. <laughs> yeah. I mean, guy, he's an absolute machine. He is. And actually, as I, I should say this, uh, as I talked to him this afternoon, he was busy uh, writing a Flames mailbag. So even when he's off, he's not really off. I He messaged me and said he was going to be hanging near a beach. And he said, if anything <laughs> Flames happened, that he would blame me. I said, I'm not entirely sure that's how it works. Because yeah. I don't make the news. I just report it. But nonetheless. Uh, we still got plenty to talk about, even with, uh, with Pat not here. And we got to start. Uh, Frank, with the latest today uh, from uh, Hockey Canada, some reports that uh, today four NHLers have been directed to surrender to London police. Uh, Can you tell us what's your understanding of where this thing stands right now? Yeah, I think, look, a lot of people were able to piece together, Logan, the the sort of dots that were existed. They connected them with the players that ended up taking leave, TSN reporting today that five players total, the same five guys that had taken leave from their various leagues, including the NHL, and including now the Globe and Mail reporting that Dylan Dubé of the Flames is among the five that are charged. You're starting to see statements from attorneys that represent these players basically say in unison that uh, they're their clients intend to plead not guilty, they're innocent, and they're looking forward to presenting things in a court of law. So really all that's left that we're waiting on is some details from the Logan, the, sorry, the London Police Service to tell us more at their press conference on Monday about the investigation and any details about how they arrived at charges if they can. Do we expect to hear anything from Hockey Canada in the meantime, Frank, or probably nothing until that press conference? No, I'd expect we don't hear anything from Hockey Canada until really after this whole process wraps, whatever that includes, whether it's uh, a full trial, whether it includes plea agreements, whatever it might be. 
Hockey Canada did their thing. They had a third party investigate. That third party has finished its investigation. Those players are, I believe, suspended from representing Canada in international play during this time period. And they've got a lot of things to answer for. But my guess is just like the NHL, they're probably going to wait until we have more information before they determine any punishments. Yeah, I guess that was the only thing I, I had left on that for you was I know a lot of people have been curious when the NHL would present their own findings from their end of the investigation. And I, I guess you just sort of dove into it there. It's They're still going to wait for the due process and whatever London police has to present first will come before anything from the NHL. And in fact, I think if it ends up going to trial, which would be a long way off, Look, the NHL and Hockey Canada can do all of the investigating that they want. They can talk to however many sources and or witnesses that they want. But until it's properly tried in court and goes through the full due process, it's really hard for anyone involved, let alone any reporters, to make any sort of definitive statements about anything. Yeah, no, totally fair. And uh, appreciate uh, you diving into that. I know it's a, a bit of a tough topic and a tough way uh, to transition into other hockey stories, but we'll do our best. Uh, I'm, I'm curious from an insider's perspective how the All-Star break is is perceived among NHL GMs when it comes to getting business done at this time of the year, Frank. Do we expect it to get busy post-All-Star break? Is there still going to be a bit of a, a wait and see from NHL GMs? Just how busy is it uh, amongst the 32 managers right now? I think most have a pretty good sense of where their team is trending. There's a few teams sort of waiting to sort things out. Teams have gone through their amateur and pro scouting meetings for the most part. Uh, lots of teams are on their bye week. I know one executive group did a, a trip together to the Bahamas. I talked to another GM today who was sitting on his, his back porch, looking at the mountains, making <laughs> calls and having meetings and getting some stuff done. So I think it's it's mostly pretty quiet this week, but you know today we're 39 days away from deadline day on March 8th, and you know I, I think the market for the most part, short of you know maybe a looming decision with Jake Gensel in Pittsburgh, and maybe a surprise name or two, we we've got a pretty good handle right now on what that market looks like. I've got 30 names on my trade targets board. It's dominated by Flames players. And I really wonder, like, what would this deadline and this market look like if we didn't have three Calgary Flames in my top five? Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the Flames there, and I do want to ask you about a couple of them in just a few moments here. But they're one of the teams, Frank, as we sit today, sort of in this wild card race in the West that includes so many teams. The Kings, Blues, and Preds are all at 54 points. Seattle's two points behind. Arizona's three points behind. In Minnesota, okay, they're seven back, but they've, you know, sort of can probably convince themselves they're still in this. Is there going to be a, a bit of a time period, at least in the Western Conference, for some of these teams to determine whether they're true buyers or sellers ahead of the trade deadline? I, I don't think it's incredibly complicated, and I really don't think the Flames are asking themselves too many questions. I think the West, everyone in the West knows where they're heading. And I, like, I think the Flames are ready to make moves. I think they, they've been ready since December. And there have been some nice, you know, spurts or stretches where they looked like they were kind of maybe putting it together. And then, you know, that's kind of followed by a three-game losing streak or whatever it might be. And so 
the Flames sort of are what they are. I don't think there's much confusion about that. Even if they were to get in, I don't think anyone would consider them a threat. And the same thing with the other teams in the West, like St. Louis, Nashville, uh, maybe Seattle, whoever you want to Arizona include in that group, they all pretty much know where they stand. It's the East that I think we've got a lot more question marks. Washington, Pittsburgh, the Flyers have really fallen back. We know where they're trending. Their coach, John Torella, came out last week and essentially said that they're going to sell off pieces. Um, You know, how aggressive would a team like Detroit be that's in a playoff spot? I think those are kind of the last few lingering questions as we get closer, but I don't really have any questions about where Calgary is. and, And I think more importantly, I don't think their front office has any disillusions about what this team isn't. Yeah, I think a, a four-game losing streak and barely skidding by Chicago ahead of the uh, All-Star break, at least here in Calgary, it certainly solidified things for the fan base. And I think a lot of people were curious whether or not that resonated in the front office. But as we've said, and I know you've had these conversations with Pat, the front office doesn't operate in the same windows that we do. Like Craig Conroy has to look at this thing from a big-picture perspective He can't roll with, okay, well, the team was on a four-game win streak, and now they're on a four-game losing streak. That's going to change my entire approach. He has to big picture this thing, right? Yeah, and I think he is. Like, And I think he knows that even with these guys that are here that are pending UFAs, they're not competitive now with them. So there's not really much of a reason outside of potentially a Noah Hannafin to extend anyone to kind of keep chasing it. You've got to turn it over. Look at the best parts of the Flames season this year, Logan. Like, it's been Connor Zary. It's been Pospisil when he's, you know, been able to impact things. It's the younger guys that have gotten an opportunity this year that have been the most exciting parts. And, you know, when you look at where this team is and where they're heading, you need more opportunity. You need to... um really provide windows and chances for these guys to to get there and that i think is is what they're figuring out is okay where are our holes how do we fill them what do we have in the pipeline that's coming and then they can begin to really look through the marketplace and say well we've got yeah futures are great and we can get some picks but are there any players out there um, that are like a Sharon Govich that might be undervalued or that we've had a close eye on that we think we might know this player better than what he's shown to this point. I think that's really the intrigue of this deadline for Calgary. It's not who are they selling when and where. It's really what are they getting in return? And the picks are awesome. But are there any other intriguing, younger-ish pieces that are either close to being NHL-ready prospects and or current NHL players that can help this team get to where they need to go um, in order to be a competitive team in two to three years. Is that why a name like a, a Niels Hoaglander comes up so often when talking about anything perhaps further with the Calgary Flames and the Vancouver Canucks? I mean, uh, I'm not saying him in particular, but a player like him like, yeah, that's a that guy that I'd guy. like to, yeah. yeah, to, to make an investment in is someone that, and, and I'm not saying the flames will, but someone that they, they believe has promise that for whatever reason, whether it's opportunity or circumstance, you know, 
Vancouver, they're not in a spot where they can try and figure that out right at this exact moment in time. And at some point, you know, those are the types of players that you seize on if you are a believer. Uh, Frank, of those three UFAs we mentioned for the Calgary Flames that are uh, on your trade uh, targets board, Chris Tanev, the latest that you guys took a deep dive in on daily faceoff yesterday, you went through uh, what Chris Tanev can bring to a team, what maybe the asking price is for Craig Conroy. I, I guess just give our listeners, you know, what you really think when it comes to teams who might be after Chris Tanev. And he, dove, he hit a bit there on, on what kind of return, I guess, Craig Conroy's looking at. But is that maybe, is a young player still in the process for a guy like Tanev? Or is that maybe fit more of the Lindholm Hannafin trade wish list a little more? Yeah, I think it's it's more or less locked in. I not locked in. That's not a fair thing to say. But with regards to Tanev, like the list of resources that you're going to get back is is probably not going to be very long. I think it's probably something you know, and you can go read the story on Daily Faceoff. The comps we walked through three different ones, including the Mark Giordano trade uh, from Seattle to Toronto. That you know you can begin to sort of see. A, a package what the flames might be looking at even the flames deal for chris russell i know it was eight years ago but a conditional second round pick that could become a first plus a couple young guys like maybe that's probably the best that the flames could be hoping for here for tanev and then i think you got to utilize the lindholm one especially if you're dealing with teams like a boston or someone that may have not the pick arsenal, but maybe a piece or two in their system that you really like where you would prioritize that. You mentioned earlier that the Hannafin one's kind of been the conversation that's gone back and forth as far as, you know, whether the Flames are going to try to make a, a last push at re-signing him. Have you heard anything in regards to that? Are we getting closer to the Flames needing a, a final save from Lindholm or from, excuse me, from Hannafin and his camp so that, Craig Conroy can explore that market more fully, I guess. I would say in a perfect world, the flames would get to the other side of this all-star and bye week break. And Craig Conroy has an answer. Okay. Now, can you, can you linger on longer than that? Of course, but that really gives Craig Conroy a month either way, either you've got him signed and you feel really good about where you're at or you've got a month to really work the market on Hannafin. And I think kind of based on his impact that I think he could make, in addition to what has probably been a pretty soft market for him um, to this point, you know, I, I'd want all the runway that I can to maximize the best deal. And so I, this is not the Flames doing it, but if I were in that position – that's how I'd be looking at it is, all right, you've had since the beginning of the season, we've given you everything you wanted. We got to the point where we laid our cards on the table. We told you we wanted you here. We offered you a massive contract. Do you want to be here? Yes or no? And if yes, that's great. We'd love to have you. But if not, no hard feelings. This is the one sort of big opportunity and moment you have in your career. Craig Conroy has been a free agent before and, and he's left. Like he knows what it's like. He, yeah. Those guys wouldn't hold a grudge, but just give me an answer. 
Uh, two more, Frank, before we let you go. He's our daily face-off NHL insider. Frank Saravalli joining us uh, Tuesday here on Sportsnet today. Last one, the Flames. Brent Living's tenure didn't see a lot of it, but a lot of Flames fans are curious if Craig Conroy is willing to go down the salary retention route with any of these three UFAs. Do you have a sense on whether the Flames would be willing to do that if it made sense in a deal? I think they'd be silly not to. I mean, this is our last year of a flat cap environment, knock on wood. And the Flames, to really juice the return, that's the way to do it. They've got the pieces that they'd be moving already on pretty manageable contracts and cap hits. But they they have an ability to squeeze out even more of a return from some of these contending teams. And they're one of the few teams in the league that hasn't used any of their uh, salary cap retention spots. I don't think ownership loves the idea of paying for players that aren't there, but I think there's a real strong business case to be made that almost every time that you're retaining the return gets that much better. You're essentially buying extra picks or prospects with cash. It's worth it almost every time. And you know, they'd be smart to leverage that as they get closer, and I'm sure they would, especially with the flexibility that they have. Uh, and before we let you go, what exactly is going to happen with the Pittsburgh Penguins between now and the trade deadline, Frank? They've fallen out of the wildcard race in the East, but we knew Kyle Dubas was going to try to make things happen for Sid and Malkin and Latang in Pittsburgh. It certainly doesn't look like it's going to be this year, though. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I would say... My view on the Penguins is that they haven't been able to consistently play at a level this year that presents them as a, not even just a playoff team, but a team that could go on a run. The problem with that is you don't want to cut the legs out from under this group and move someone like an elite winger like Gensel, who just for Flames fans reference, if, if Gensel were to become truly available with the way that he's produced and consistently been north of a point per game or right at a point per game and can score, he will become the number one player available on the board. He will yeah. you know, jump over Lindholm, even though there's a disparity in the position. But with that said, you don't want to trade Gensel prematurely until you know the answer just because of all that you've committed already to this point like think of a poker game the penguins are pretty pot committed it's not just the contracts for malkin and Latang, and the fact that you want to seize on what's been an, another all-world season from Sidney crosby but it's also they traded this year's first round pick already for eric carlson so that's that much more that this team has to dig out of it's already going to be probably you're looking at a solid decade of darkness in Pittsburgh to come. The last thing you want to do is be signing Jake Gensel to be the best player on the 32nd place team. So he's exactly the piece that they could use to jumpstart that rebuild. But you want to make sure that you've given all those vets who have provided so much, including three Stanley Cups, every chance that they have to make a statement. Uh, going to be a tricky situation for new GM Kyle Dubas. Uh, Frankie, appreciate it. What's next for you? Are you off to Toronto for All-Star festivities, pal? Yep, off to Toronto tomorrow. Uh, All-Star again. I'm looking forward to it. It should be. This might be the best skills competition we've ever seen. So I'm not a big All-Star weekend guy, but um, this one might be pretty good. I'm looking forward to it. Safe travels, Frank. Uh, enjoy your time in Toronto, pal.
Logan, have a good one. Thanks, pal. Frank Cervalli joining us down the Atlas Peace and Sports Bar guest hotline. He's our NHL insider from Daily Faceoff. He is brought to you by South Trail Chrysler, where they always make the buying process simple. Look for the big Canadian flag at 130th Ave or visit SouthTrailChrysler.com. The latest on the Calgary Flames with Frank Cervalli. Uh, trade news from around the league and the Pittsburgh Penguins situation is one um, that we're going to have to watch for in the next couple of weeks here because you're if Frank's right, you know, if you're the Pittsburgh Penguins and you're committed to Sid and, and Malkin and these guys about, hey, we owe it to you guys to, you know, remain as competitive we, as we can. How do you sell that to Malkin and Crosby if you go off and trade a guy like Jake Gensel? And in the same vein, you trade Jake Gensel. Well, you've traded away your first round pick this year. Are you going to go and, you know, find yourself improving the draft stock for a, a team like San Jose that much more in the process. It's really fascinating. And I think the East is, is going to be curious to watch the West. I think has a ton of interesting storylines. I think we know where the flames directions headed. You could hear from Frank that it was pretty, you know, at least the front office, as far as he's concerned, feels like they have a pretty solid feel on this team and a pretty solid direction going forward. But, how do you process who the buyers and sellers are in the West when so many teams are right around that final wild card spot? Uh, Kings are in a bit of a spiral. St. Louis has been red hot uh, since that win in Calgary. Really, they've been um, won five in a row, and they're into a wild card spot now. Nashville's right there. Seattle's right there. Uh, Arizona is in the mix. Feels like a lot of teams could be searching. For that last piece, and of course, you've got the contenders of a Vancouver, a Colorado. Um, does Edmonton, you know, who's on this historic winning streak, decide to go out and make a major play to try to improve their improve their playoff odds with a guy like uh, Connor McDavid and, and Leon Draisaitl on the roster? Going to be lots to uh, watch for, and as Frank said, thirty nine days away uh, today from the NHL's trade deadline. Looking forward to it. Of course, we'll have you covered uh, right here on Sportsnet. 960 the time we'll have all day coverage of it when we get to the trade deadline in March. Uh, Logan Gordon along with you. Uh, of course, uh, NHL action continuing. Some teams on their all-star break, but some teams aren't. We do have two games on the NHL board tonight. The Columbus Blue Jackets and the St. Louis Blues kick things off tonight. Uh, it's a 6 o'clock puck drop from St. Louis. The Blues looking to stay red hot. And then your late game tonight. Shan's excited for this one. He can't wait to see the San Jose Sharks and the Seattle Kraken on Sportsnet and Sportsnet 360. I, I'm excited for both games today. These are these are two games that I, I've had circled on my calendar for a couple weeks now. And really, yeah, oh yeah, I'm I'm ready to hoping I can get off work a little early today and, and go catch them both. The, the yeah. eight eight thirty puck drop for that San Jose game. Yeah, can't wait. Thirteen win, San Jose Sharks. They're kind of fun to watch. I'm not gonna lie. They they just play chaotic hockey. I don't think they know anything else. I, that's it, it. Makes it fun. At least, like like Chicago can't score. They've scored two goals in the last four games. At least San Jose is fun to watch. They just they look a little. Uh, I, I want to call them silly. They look a little silly out there. Is that a good word? Yeah, it works. Okay. San Jose is just so bad at everything. Yeah. Thirty second in penalty kill. Thirty first in goals for. Thirty second <laughs> in goals against. Whoa. And they just want they just want uh, they want Pittsburgh to lose. Yeah. Right. Up that pick. Give us two, two top ten picks to restart the, 
the rebuild in San Jose. I don't understand what's going on in Pittsburgh. I, I don't get it. I think they have so much top-end talent, and they, they can't figure out their power play when they have five power play freaks, or at least they should. I, I don't understand what's going on in Pittsburgh, and I'm sure San Jose is just thrilled with all of this. Yeah, it's good news if you're San Jose. It's not great news if you're Kyle Dubas, who just re-signed Tristan Jari to a long-term contract. Ryan Graves, I believe, signed a six-year contract this offseason. And, yeah, they have Jake Gensel just sitting there, who, as you heard from Frank, would be the top available player on Daily Faceoff's trade targets board if he's made available. But can you let a guy like that go if you're Pittsburgh while you're trying to stay competitive with Sid and Malkin and Carlson? It just it sends the wrong message. Absolutely, it For- does. But what do you what do you do? He's going to turn thirty. You've already got Rust on a long deal and Raquel, and they're both over thirty. I just the older teams just don't just I, don't win in the NHL. I could see them convincing him to sign a two year contract. Just say, hey, look, we got a couple years left. You can still cash in in a couple years, but. Right now, we still think we can compete. First of all, I have to ask the question, do you think Kyle Dubas is the most stressed 25-year-old man in the world? <laughs> He's a little older than that. I, I feel I feel for the guy, and I I think we're going to start to see some gray hair on the poor he might. Too. Yeah, going from Toronto to um, everything that he has now in Pittsburgh, it's going to be uh, an interesting rebuild there for the now 38-year-old Kyle Dubas. Frank was I don't think Frank was wrong about the decade of darkness that's to come. And but you have to give that that to Crosby and Malkin and, and Latang and all of those guys. They've done everything for that city. They've won cups. They've Well Crosby's just he's going off again this year. Yeah. Like you can't you can't waste it. No. And Gensel's right there. He's got forty nine points. Malkin's been good. He's got forty points. Yeah, it's, it's just I I just I still go back to the I don't know that Eric Carlson was what this team needed. But it's the decision they made, and they've got to kind of run with it now. How long do we think Dubas stays in office there? Oh, well, I think he's going to be there a long time. Yeah. He's the president of Hockey Ops and the GM. Yeah. So we'll see. But this season's going to be interesting. If you're like a Vancouver and that's all they're talking about right now is if you can get a guy like Jake Gensel to prop you up for a playoff run. I'd be very interested in that if I was Vancouver. I think Vancouver and Winnipeg need to go all in this year. They need to capitalize on what they've what they've accomplished so far because it has been outstanding. I mean, Vancouver's top of the league. Yep. And and they just I, I know their shooting percentages are ridiculous, but they would have regressed to the mean aggressively in the first quarter of the season if it wasn't a real thing. Like this this is just a really good team. I I can't believe that we're seeing the, there. There's rumors about Zadorov. I, I know it's not. There's not a whole lot of base behind it, but they're already talking about Zadorov and whether he's the right fit there. I don't know. Interesting times for sure. He's Shan. He's one of my outstanding producers, along with Cam, uh, along with us this Tuesday afternoon. We're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back on the other side. Uh, the Jays finally made a big free agent splash. Fans have been. Waiting for it for months. It's it's not Shohei. It's, it's really not anything close to Shohei, but maybe it's a big enough splash to make a difference. Yeah, we'll see. We'll tell you who the Jays uh, locked up in free agency today, and we'll also uh, get uh, thoughts on the signing with Ben Nicholson-Smith from the At The Letters podcast and Sportsnet.ca. That's when Sportsnet Today returns next here on Sportsnet 960 The Fan.
We finally have Toronto Blue Jays news to talk about. Yes. Woo. Yes. No, Shohei Otani hasn't rescinded his contract with the Dodgers. What? No, Teoscar Hernandez hasn't jumped ship. No. That's true. But it's 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 a bat. Who is it? He's got a red beard. Uh is it Alex Verdugo? Oh, his beard's no, gone. No, he's oh. he's a Yankee. Yeah. No more beard. Hmm. How does Justin Turner sound? Oh, I kind of like that. Your new DH and sometimes third base slash first baseman for the Toronto Blue Jays. Who, that's that's what's happened. Who is going to play third base? That's a really good question, Shan. And I don't have the answer for you. I don't, I don't, I don't like know that. that the Jays have the answer for you, but at least this man will play some third base. Reports came out earlier and it was made official just a few moments ago this Tuesday afternoon that Justin Turner and the Toronto Blue Jays have agreed to a one-year, $13 million deal. Ben Nicholson-Smith from Sportsnet.ca and the At The Letters podcast was the first on this. The deal is, of course, pending a physical. Uh, he's 39 years old. Definitely the biggest offensive addition for the Toronto Blue Jays this season. Uh, he declined a $13.4 million option with the Boston Red Sox after signing a two-year $22 million deal with the club last season. Hit 276 with 23 home runs and a career-best 96 RBIs in 146 games last year with Boston. He's a native of Long Beach, California, and he joined the Red Sox after nine years with the L.A. Dodgers, where he was a two-time All-Star and helped the Dodgers to win a World Series in 2020. It's a former seventh-round pick by the Reds in 2006, where he was traded to the Orioles in 2008, made his MLB debut in 2009, was then picked up off the waivers by the Mets in 2010, Stayed there until he was non-tendered in 2013. Dodgers signed him to a minor league contract in 2013 and turned him into a two-time All-Star and a World Series champion. Not bad career numbers, 288, 187 home runs, and 759 RBIs. But, of course, age will be a concern for Blue Jays fans, who Turner, of course, now turns 39 years old. But, again, coming off of a... Career best 96 RBIs last season. Certainly representing by far the biggest addition for the Toronto Blue Jays this offseason. Mentioned Ben Nicholson-Smith was first on this story. He joined our pal J.D. Bunkus on the J.D. Bunkus podcast on Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto, to break down the latest addition for Ross Atkins and the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Jays, breaking news day, so called in the heavy. My guy. Ben Nicholson-Smith, the Letters Podcast, MLB editor and insider for Sportsnet. Thanks for doing this, buddy. You got it. Good to be uh, good to be on with you. I feel like it's been a while. Yeah, well, it's been quiet. It's it's hard to. And I actually had a friend of mine reach out and go, "You got to stop hammering the Blue Jays before the off season's over." And I went, "Fine, fair enough. I'll wait." So I waited. And let me start with this: Do you think that the off season is now over? <laughs> I don't think it's ever like over, over, but I think this is the last big move and mm-hmm. maybe I'll be wrong, but I think this is probably the last big move. 
Yeah, okay. That that was my sense of things too, just because it's difficult to imagine how they would add another puzzle piece and end up getting them in the mix, considering that the other major pieces would be DHs, right? Yeah, uh, like, exactly. I mean, you could go out there and in theory, you could use an extra outfielder um, to have in this mix, like a right-handed hitting outfielder. Is there a move where you, like, trade someone off the roster and, you know, you have someone where, hey, if, if it's late in the game, you have a lefty facing Kiermaier and Varsho, you want to have a Michael A. Taylor. Sure, like that mm-hmm. could help this team, but Michael A. Taylor's probably making $10.5 million, and he probably wants to start every day. So yeah. I'm just not sure that that's the way things end up going. Yeah, no, once once they made the Kiermaier signing, it felt like the direction of the offseason had been decided upon. Because it, it just if you weren't moving Dalton Varsho to center field, and having that be, yeah, a basically everyday situation, I thought, all right, cool. Then you're trying to add somebody that's going to be either the depth outfielder that plays the DH or, yeah, something that looks a little bit like this where it's going to be Isaiah Conner-Falefa as your Chapman replacement and Justin Turner as your Brandon Belt replacement. Um, okay, so wh- what do you, first of all, why him? Because out of the, I think that of the three guys that were remaining that were really of interest to the fan base, Soler, J.D. Martinez, and Justin Turner, most people... I think would fairly assess Turner as the lowest upside of the three when it comes to at least the bat. I agree. I think that's totally fair. You're not going to see Justin Turner come in here and hit 35 homers. It's just not going to happen. Whereas with JD Martinez, that could happen with Jorge Soler. I mean, he could have 45, who knows? It could be all over the map with him. Um, Yeah. With Justin Turner though, um, he's probably the most likely of those three to hit 280. He's probably, you know, good bet to have an 800 OPS. Now, that's not a guarantee by any stretch. And you start to look at it, and it's like, you know, Justin Turner does celebrate his 40th birthday later this year. And, you know, he's been able to be a really effective player consistently into his late 30s. So can he do it at age 39? I think he probably can because he did it at age 38 and he did it at age 37. And he's always been a good hitter. But at some point, there is an end and it's a one-year deal. So the risk is mitigated, but you look around baseball and this is a player who might be the oldest position player in major league baseball this coming season. Um, depending on where Joey Votto lands, depending on whether Yuli Gurriel ends up playing, um, he has a very good chance to be the oldest position player in baseball. So this is not a deal without risk, but it, mm-hmm. he's a really good hitter at the same time. He's a whole, a very good player. He is a, excellent, consistent offensive upgrade for this team, who's obviously much better than having Spencer Horwitz as your everyday DH. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think Bo Bichette had an impact on the signing? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, so he was just speculating when he, when he goes on Blair and Barker and he says that it's like, he's just doing the same thing we're all doing, which is like, Hey, there's three names and he'd pick two of them. Yeah, exactly. I think, and you know, maybe we'll learn that I'm wrong on this, but I, I think players follow this stuff pretty closely. Um, you know, of course, it's their it's their professional lives, right? If um, if Fan Five Ninety was about to make a big free agent signing, you'd probably be following it pretty closely too. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think for for Bo Bichette, of course, he's following it, but I don't think that he ends up um, having an impact on it. I don't think I would be following it very closely because my <laughs> automatic assumption would be that this person is coming in in place of me. So <laughs> I would be going, I would be really actively against it. I wouldn't be, view, I wouldn't be going. Yes, I hope, I hope this person comes in and absolutely takes my spot. Um, okay, yeah, so how, how much of this though? When they when they were going after Corey Seager. Yes, exactly. So I think that that that's the only way that I could relate to it. Um, how much of this though do you think is the bat versus how much of this is actually the intangibles? 
I think it's 95% the bat. Um, I think the intangibles are there. He's obviously an established big leaguer. He has won a World Series. He has won an NLCS MVP. He's been great in the postseason. This is, that helps. That is like, yeah, 5%. Um, But it's mostly because he can hit major league pitching in May when you're facing the Royals or in, you know, July when you're facing the Marlins. It's just such a volume game. And you need someone to take those 500, 600 plate appearances and be better than what you had on your roster before, which again was like Ernie Clement and Spencer Horowitz. And there are going to be injuries too. And maybe Turner will be one of them. We'll see. Maybe it's Springer. Maybe it's someone totally unexpected. You don't know, but you do know that something will happen with respect to health on this team. And so that's where you just needed to deepen the overall core here. You needed to deepen the lineup to the point where if someone does go down, then you're not relying on that triple-A core. As amazing as that story was late last year, you want to have some established big leaguers, and that's what Justin Turner is. So my thing is, uh, I, I like everything that you're saying, and I don't, I don't mind the Justin Turner signing. Like, I, I think it's kind of fine, and my expectation was between him and the other guys. I do think that Solaire would have been the most attractive to me, but we'll see what he ends up signing for. Martinez, we'll see what he ends up signing for. Turner, just the fact that uh, he plays games. I think that's very attractive to me because last year you saw with Brandon Belt, who you got a lot out of. You got 400 plate appearances from Brandon Belt, and I think a lot of people would have taken that going into the season given all the parameters with the injuries. But yeah, you looked at the body of work before that, and it was like 51 games, 97 games, 78 games. But yeah, his his OPS plus was higher than Justin Turner's last year when he played games. Um, he hit from the side of the plate that I think that they would have preferred their their bat addition to be. And so it's like if he's replacing Horowitz, that's one thing. But it feels like he's replacing someone who had an 858 OPS and you're replacing him with a 40-year-old who has an 800 OPS. And so, like, that's fine. I just I think I would have wanted almost the intangibles to – I don't think I want it to be higher, but I would have almost expected you to be thinking that it was a little bit higher given that it does seem you're going to get more games out of Turner but maybe less output than what you got from Brandon Belt. And that if you were looking for something materially different as a group when it came to the offense, I would have thought that you would swing a little bit higher on a J.D. Martinez or on a Solaire. And so the follow-up to that is, do you think that those guys were primary targets, or do you think that there is something that kept the Jays out of the running for those two? Well, I do think that they were in the running for J.D. Martinez. My understanding is they Mm -hmm. did have real interest in him. I was never able to pinpoint you know exactly how serious they were on Jorge Soler. I, Jorge Soler, candidly, just never felt like a Blue Jays-type player. Um, mm. You know, there's a lot of risk there, right? There's a lot of volatility, and if you're talking about a multi-year deal for a player yeah. who doesn't play defense, and I just, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of boom or bust. And not to say that the Jays can't welcome risk into their lineup, um, because they, they have some good players as is, um, but... I just I wasn't expecting Soler to be the guy, but you know, on the point of on the point of you know how much are these intangibles playing into the to the move? I think that you almost have to like fast forward five or six months from now, and when the Blue Jays are playing their most important games of the season, I guess this is six or seven months from now, September, October, down the stretch, it doesn't matter what Justin Turner did in 2017 unless he's also good in 2024. Like sure. if he's if he's sitting there with a 7.30 OPS. He's just not, whatever experiences he's had, it's just not going to land in that room in the same way unless he is currently contributing. So that's where I think for that postseason experience to matter to the extent that it can and for his impact to be fully felt, 
he still has to be contributing in the present day. And this deal, to me, says the Blue Jays believe he can contribute right now. Yeah. Uh, Ennis had an interesting theory that I, I want to kick by you, which is if you look at the offensive numbers for players last year at the Rogers Center, they were clearly poor. And you can say how much of that is the players, but there was real discussion about the park factors with this place. And if you were a Jock Peterson, right, you're signing a one-year prove-it deal. Or maybe that's what J.D. Martinez is only looking at right now because how old is he? He's 36, 35? Yeah. yeah, he's somewhere in that age range. You're probably only looking at the one-year deal. Do you, do you think that – or have you heard anybody discussing that? Agents, players, whatever, whoever's in your circle about, yeah, Toronto maybe not being as attractive of a place for – what they once were, which was like the Marcus Semyon type, right? A guy who looks like he's trying to do the prove-it deal, who gets the big money, and then just a one-year contract, and then hopes to sign a bigger extension. Like, we know Justin Turner's not that, right? This is likely the last contract he's ever going to get. If not, it's another one-year contract. But yeah, do you think that that's something that has, yeah, been a concern for players and agents around baseball about the Rogers Center Park factors? You know, it's not something that I've heard. Uh, it's possible that some players have that concern. I think, like, I, I come back to a conversation I had with uh, with one of the bigger agents in the game early in the off season. I was asking him about one of the one of his clients and where where things might go, and he just simplified it. He said, "In the end, it's just money." He said, "Money talks," and I think that's I think that's true here. If the Blue Jays had offered J.D. Martinez twenty million over one year, he'd be a Blue Jay today. If they had offered Jorge Soler forty five over three. He would be a blue jay. Like it's it's that simple. And of course, there are other factors in their families and their you know players want to win and all this stuff. But the Jays are a competitive team with playing time to offer. This is why they were always going to be in a good position to sign someone as a DH. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really think that if they put twenty million in front of JD Martinez, like we'd be talking about him right now. Okay. Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. How much of the not being in a Solaire, because you mentioned you didn't think he was the Blue Jays kind of player. Yeah, obviously you you mentioned that there's risk to that guy, but he's also been nasty in the postseason. He's clearly the highest upside bat, I would say, out of the three. The only guy out of them that's likely to get any kind of term. It was. Do you think that's uh, the biggest reason for not signing the guy? Like the actual, that you would have had, had to extend term when it, uh, to a team that doesn't have a lot of guys where you know exactly what the future is going to be, or you think it's just more stylistic fit and the risk assessment of just what he could actually be on the field? I do think it's a risk reward thing where if it was, if contracts like weren't, if, if dollars weren't a factor, okay, if it was just purely about the player um, and the contract was going to be the exact same, maybe you do take Solaire uh, if it's, if it's like one year and 13, if it's the exact same terms as it was for Justin Turner. Like at that point, you probably go with the younger player. But I think when you're talking about someone who has been so inconsistent, and this is where you know Turner and Solaire, there's such a clear contrast because in Solaire you have someone who has bounced you know between 40 plus home runs, 45 plus home runs, all the way to being a below average player. Where Justin Turner has a decade where his worst season has been a 114 OPS plus. So your chances of getting an above average offensive season from him are very high. And, and yeah. I think that's like a reasonable take to have, even, even as he's gotten slower and older. So that's, that's to me what it is, is if you're talking about making a three-year commitment or a two-year commitment to a player who is so volatile, I think they're rightfully going to be front office officials who look at that and say there's a lot of risk there. So when the, this re- signing reminds me a little bit of the, the Kiermaier tra- or acquisition just from the standpoint of, Okay, this guy comes in. He's a he's a known name, known commodity. Um, 
not coming off of an injury, but when they first signed Kiermaier, it was, yeah, he's he's a great outfielder, but he's probably not going to play in the field as much as we anticipate. And then he played great, and the bat played well, too, so maybe that changed some of the math on it. But what's your expectation of just Turner at third versus Turner at DH? Is, is this another scenario where you could see the vet playing more in the field than we initially believe when the signing happens? Yeah, I think you kind of play it by ear here. And you don't push him too hard in spring. You let him get his reps in. And you play him occasionally to start the season at third base. And you just kind of see how he does. Because the metrics weren't – he didn't play a lot of third last year Mm -hmm. um, because the Red Sox have Devers. So, you know, he was playing more first. um, Makes sense. I think here that would flip because Vladdy will play first. And they have more of a need at third base. So it's a position he's handled year after year he's going to know the fundamentals he's going to make good decisions but it's a question of range it's a question of arm strength the metrics on his arm strength were not good last year so you know are you looking at someone who's probably a below average third baseman that's okay you know it's a drop off from chapman obviously but he doesn't have to play there a ton i think you just let it play out and if you get to july and it's like he's kind of nursing you know couple health things and you want to keep his bat in the lineup you just dh him but if he's feeling super healthy to your point about kiermeyer then maybe there's a scenario where he does play whatever it is 25 35 games at third base and he can really help you out there yeah um for those wondering he he only played seven games last year at third for the red Sox. and again you mentioned the devers factor um, he actually played 10 games at second um, and then 41 games at first base. So my guess is, is that, yeah, they'll probably move him around the diamond a little bit, given wherever they sort of need a day off or how they're going to keep his bat in the lineup. But ultimately, he's going to play just like he was with the Red Sox, the the majority of his games at, at DH. I, I guess I'm just a little surprised by it because it felt as though the direction of the team was to not have pure DH types. And yet he feels a little closer to that. But either way, they clearly needed a bat. And yeah, Justin Turner, I think you, your assessment of high floor, low risk, uh, solid intangible, solid track record, the main thing being the age. I think that's kind of, that's kind of a good one, and that's where we're going to land on this one. Uh, we've only got a minute left in the show, Benny. Um, yeah, thanks for making time today, pal. Uh, sorry it was rushed. Sorry it was under the gun. But I appreciate you coming on. You got it. Talk soon, JD. See you, pal. That's Ben Nicholson-Smith from Sportsnet.ca and the Anthem Letters podcast with J.D. Bunkus on Sportsnet 590. Breaking down the latest acquisition for the Toronto Blue Jays, Justin Turner signs a one-year $13 million contract that has been made official by the Blue Jays on this Tuesday afternoon. So the Jays have added at least one power bat to their lineup, as you heard from Ben there. Maybe there's still more to come. Maybe a J.D. Martinez, Soler is still out there. Uh, clearly feels like this would be a massive uh, understatement, but a loss of you know some major free agents for the Jays this year. Chapman still hasn't been replaced. He's still out there. Uh, Turner really can't be your only major offensive move if you're Ross Atkins and company. So maybe this is the start of a few more moves by the Toronto Blue Jays, but uh, we'll still wait and see. Turner, of course, 39 years old, coming off a Good season with the AL East rival Boston Red Sox. We'll take a break. Come back on the other side. We're kicking off hour two around the corner, taking a look at the CFL free agency preview with our pal John Hodge from Three Down Nation. That's when Sportsnet Today returns on Sportsnet 960 The Fan.